Good morning, everyone. Well, thanks for braving the, the rough weather and being here. I trust God will bless you. Let's turn to Revelations chapter 21. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 5. Would you please stand in honor of God's Word? Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Let's pray together. Lord, you have given us this extraordinary revelation of what is to come. Lord, help us to grasp this truth in a new way today. Let it thrill our hearts. Let it renew our hope. And let it be something that causes us to fall more deeply in love with you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Shortly after I committed my life to the Lord at age 18, I had what I call a God dream. I've had about four God dreams in my life, and this one was the first and the most profound. I actually heard the trumpet sound of the Lord's return. And as I looked up in the sky in my dream, I saw the glorious crimson clouds, the beams of light, and the, and the multitudes of angels. I knew exactly what this was, and I was thrilled beyond words. And my heart was pounding because of the excitement. And I remember myself saying in my dream, the Lord is coming. The Lord is coming. And then my dream ended, unfortunately. (laughs) And even though that was 50 years ago, the profound reality of that dream and the hope of heaven has been a constant source of encouragement and inspiration for me. The scripture says that heaven is our blessed hope. The hope of heaven is referred to as the anchor of our souls. So if the hope of heaven is such a central and critical part of our faith, why don't we think and talk about heaven more than we do? Right? Colossians 3 says that we are to set our minds not on earthly things, but on the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Scripture exhorts us to set our minds on heaven, to have a heaven-centered life. How can we set our hearts on heaven when we think about it so little? Question number one, why think about heaven? I think there are a couple of reasons that we don't think about heaven more. First has to do with our lack of understanding about what the Bible reveals about heaven. It's amazing how little we know. And much of what we do know comes from TV, from movies, from pop culture, from books, from conversations with friends. 
And what we end up having is a highly subjective view of heaven, which is also often disconnected from real biblical doctrine. When's the last time you've heard a message about heaven? So often we're told how to get there, but not very often are we told what there is like. The second reason that we don't talk much about heaven has to do with our misconceptions of what heaven really is. Tragically, many people don't find joy when they think about heaven. They think that heaven will be this never-ending church service. Or that somehow we're going to be floating around in clouds just strumming harps. Or that we'll be these disembodied spirits with nothing to do but sing hymns all day long. Many people are afraid that heaven will be filled with all kinds of things that we don't really like or care about. Quite frankly, things that might be kind of boring. Well, I'm happy to tell you that nothing could be further from the truth. Let me paint a little picture for you. If you'll just bear with me for a moment, if you could all just close your eyes, I'll tell you when to open them. Imagine this scene. Picture the most beautiful place on earth with lakes and rivers and streams and majestic trees, lush green grass, gorgeous flowers in rolling meadows. You reach up to a nearby tree and you pick a perfect apple or a peach. You take a bite of it. It's so juicy and sweet and refreshing. You've never tasted anything so good. You look up and you see this deep blue sky and jagged mountains and magnificent waterfalls. Now imagine being able to enjoy this with no limitations whatsoever. The weather is perfect. Your body is healthy and strong. And you can do things that you never dreamed you could do. You see all kinds of animals and amazing creatures that you can interact with without fear. You spend unhurried time with friends and loved ones who are happy and healthy and smiling and full of joy. No one is depressed or angry or crabby or lonely. Imagine laughing and talking and playing and going on endless adventures and doing work that you absolutely love. And then a short distance away, you see Jesus with a smile on his face as he catches you enjoying some of what he's made for you. And as he walks towards you, you bow down in worship. He grabs you by the hand and helps you up and then gives you a big bear hug. And in that moment, you realize that this is the person I was made for and this is the place I was meant to be. Okay, you can open up your eyes. Does that sound boring to you? No. And you may be shocked to realize that there is a biblical basis for everything that I have just described to you, and I can't wait to share it with you. One of the reasons that I love City Church so much is because of the way that I see God blending the various generations. We have young children, we have youth, we have young adults who are gone on a retreat this weekend, we have middle-aged people, and we have the elderly. Now, I don't like to admit it, but I guess I would be considered in that latter category in the elderly. I understand that when you're age 50, you're eligible to be in the primetime group. Well, I'm 68, and I don't think I'm old enough to be in the primetime group. What does that tell you? Is that a picture of denial or what? Our elderly population at City Church faces many, strat uh, many challenges, 
And in fact, every week in our staff meeting, we're reviewing a list of elderly, those who are sick, those who are infirmed, those who are in the hospital going to have surgeries, those who are shut-ins, and there are literally dozens of them. And I think I can speak for many of the elderly when I say that the older you get, the more you have to come to grips with your own physical limitations and the reality of dying. Those of you who are younger might not think about dying very much. And others of you don't like to think about dying at all. But the truth is, we all have this terminal disease called mortality. Here are the hard, cold facts. Three people in, the, in this world die every second. In the amount of time that it took me to say that, three people just died. 180 people die every minute. 11,000 die every hour, and 250,000 people die every day. Well, Joel, thank you for those inspiring facts. I'm so glad I came to church today. Bear with me for a moment here. I've got a point in all of this. The Bible says that our lives are like a single breath. Picture a single breath escaping from your mouth on a cold day and just dissipating into the air. That's how quickly... Our lives are on this earth. And since life is so short, isn't it wise to consider what's waiting for us on the other side? God uses pain, he uses suffering, and he uses death to detach us from this world and to set our minds on what lies beyond. This is why the good news of the gospel is such good news. Hebrews says, because Jesus rose from the dead and conquered the one who held the power of death, He freed us all who were held in slavery through the fear of death. In Corinthians chapter 15, Paul asks this rhetorical question. He says, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Death no longer needs to control us through fear. And what delivers us from the fear of death? Having a relationship with the one who died in our place and made a way for us to live with him forever. This is why it is so important to talk about heaven. Now, let's look at one more reason why we need to talk about heaven more before we actually talk about what heaven is. It would be an understatement to say that life is hard. We all have those glorious moments in life, don't we, when we experience the goodness of life and there's moments when we actually say to ourselves, you know what, life is good. But those moments are few and painfully tempered by the reality that things are not as they should be. In fact, much of life is really not as it should be. I know this past year has been a difficult year for many of you. Some of us are burdened by things that never seem to change. In the face of repeated disappointment and discouragement, you find yourself struggling with depression. Many are grieving the loss of a loved one this past year. Maybe you're in a failing marriage. Maybe you're suffering in your body. Maybe you're disappointed that you feel like you're in a dead-ended job. Or maybe you're just coming to the realization that your dreams, whatever they were, just aren't happening. You're tired physically and emotionally, and you feel like your life is in a deep fog. This reminds me of a story that I read some time ago that I'd like to share with you. 
1952, a young Florence Chadwick stepped into the waters of the Pacific Ocean off Catalina Island, determined to swim to the shore of the mainland of California. She'd already been the first woman to swim the English Channel both ways. The weather was foggy and chilly. She could hardly see the boats that accompanied her. Still, she swam for 15 hours. When she begged to be taken out of the water along the way, her mother, in a boat alongside, told her that she was close and that she could make it. Finally, physically and emotionally exhausted, she stopped swimming and was pulled out of the cold water. It wasn't until she was in the boat that she discovered that the shore was less than a half mile away. At the news conference the next day, she said, all I could see was the fog. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. Many of us feel overwhelmed by the fog of life. I like living in Wisconsin, but there are times when the endless days of clouds can really get to me. We had a stretch like that just a few weeks ago. I never liked admitting that the weather could affect my disposition. But when the sun doesn't shine for days on end, it can be very depressing, and life can be that way. If we could just stretch our heads above the clouds and see the beautiful sun along the sunset, it would give us hope on those cloudy days, wouldn't it? If we could just see the shoreline through the fog, we know we could make it, and we know that everything would be okay. If we don't see the shoreline of heaven, not only will the great hope of our faith be less vibrant, but we will have a tendency to try to squeeze everything out of this life instead of only the things that heaven can provide. Number two, Second question this morning, what is the big picture of God's redemptive purposes? When most of us think about redemption, we naturally think about the ways that God works in our personal lives to bring us into greater health and wholeness. But this morning, I'd like to enlarge our perspective of God's redemptive plans. The, the physical universe, everything in creation, was created for God's glory. When Adam and Eve sinned, the universe fell under the influence of our sin. It not only affected Adam and Eve and all of their descendants, but it affected the animal kingdom and all of creation as well. The seduction of man did not catch God by surprise. He had a plan in place by which he would redeem mankind, all of creation, from sin, from corruption, and death. Just as he promised to make men and women new, he promises to renew creation as well. Listen to this passage in Romans 8, 22. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. As people and all of creation, we groan for redemption. Well, why, why does God bother? Why doesn't he just destroy everything and start all over? 
I mean, why bother with this messed up world? Wouldn't it be a lot easier just to wipe the slate clean and start all over? Good question. You have to remember that when God created the world and everything in it, he pronounced it good. All of it he pronounced good. He never once has renounced his claim on what he made. He's not going to abandon his creation. He's going to restore it. This is such an important concept to grasp because it has far-reaching implications on our understanding of what heaven will be like. Redemption has always been God's plan. There was never a plan B. But that begs the question, if God knew that Adam and Eve were going to sin, which would cause this horrible fallen state, why would he let it happen? Why would he allow so much suffering and pain down through the centuries? And how could that possibly be God's will? The answer to that question could take a whole message itself. But let me give you what I think is the short answer based on a passage in Ephesians 2, verse 7. It says this, And God raised us up with Christ in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Because of what happened to man and the sacrifice that would be needed to make things right, we would see a dimension of the love of God that we could never know otherwise. Because of the cross and because of his redemptive work, we will be learning in the ages to come of the incomparable riches of his grace. And that knowledge will permanently endear us to him and it'll cause us to be enthralled with his love forever. To God, this is all worth it. And when we see it from his perspective, we will agree. Redemption is such a beautiful word. The word redeem means to buy back what was formerly owned by God. God owned creation, and he placed mankind on the earth to rule it and to develop it for his glory. When Satan seduced man, he usurped creation, and he became an illegitimate ruler. God's plan, original plan, was never fulfilled, at least not yet. Was his plan ill-conceived? Was it thwarted? By an enemy greater than him? Was it abandoned? No, not at all. It was temporarily delayed, but it never ceased to be his plan. Everything that has been affected by the fall will be redeemed. Christ, as the second Adam, did what the first Adam couldn't do. Jesus didn't die to make the best of a bad situation. He died to make a way for mankind, for earth and the universe to be renewed and restored, to forever proclaim his glory. Amen. Listen to these vocabulary words from Scripture. These are taken right out of the word. Redeem, reconcile, restore, recover, return, renew, regenerate, resurrect, these words reflect God's desire and God's plan to restore all things to their original design. When Jesus was on earth, what did he do? All of his miracles were about restoring what was lost or broken or distorted. He was taking what was affected by sin and evil and he was restoring it according to its original design. 
God's redemptive plan climaxes not with the return of Christ, nor the millennial reign, but with the new earth. The new earth will be the old earth restored. To be sure, the earth will be radically transformed, but it won't be completely destroyed. When people pass away, they don't cease to exist. Just as we will be raised to be new people, the earth will be raised to be a new earth. As we read before in Revelation 21.5, it says, He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. This is God's plan to make everything new. Redeemed men and women and redeemed nations on a redeemed earth. Question number three. What is heaven like right now? In 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul gives us a detailed picture of what will happen when Christ returns. He says, when Jesus returns with a great trumpet call of God, that's the trumpet that I heard in my dream, he will come with those who have already died and have been in heaven. Their bodies will be raised from the dead. Then those who are alive on earth will be caught up together with him in the air. Okay? That's right out of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Now, all of that is future. But what happens now to loved ones who die as believers? And to us if we die before Christ returns? Where will we go? Well, when a Christian dies, he enters what the theologians call the intermediate heaven a transitional place between our past lives on earth and our future resurrected lives on the new earth. Paul said that when we die, we immediately go to be with Christ. He said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Usually when we refer to heaven, this intermediate heaven that we're talking about is what we're referring to. When our kids say, Grandma's in heaven now, or when we say to our kids, Grandma's in heaven now, that's what we're talking about. That's what we mean. This intermediate heaven or this present heaven is a temporary place that we go to before the Lord returns, before we receive our resurrected bodies, before the final judgment, and before the creation of the new heaven and the new earth. All of that is future. And although this intermediate heaven is absolutely a wonderful place, full of joy, it's not our final destination where we will live with God forever. Although the present heaven is a spiritual place, there is strong scriptural evidence to suggest that it's a physical place as well. And although we don't receive our resurrected bodies until Christ returns, we exist in some recognizable physical form and not just as disembodied spirits. What is the intermediate heaven like? Although there are many passages that give us many clues about what heaven is like, one of the most detailed is this one in Revelation 6, verses 9 through 11, and I'm going to read it to you. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord? holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and the brothers who were to be killed as they had been 
was completed. Now, it's kind of a morbid passage when you think about it, but but the Bible doesn't mince words, does it? It tells it like it is. It tells us a lot about what this temporary heaven is, and it answers a lot of questions about what heaven is like right now. In heaven, do we remember our lives on earth? Yes. In fact, our memories will probably be better then than they are right now, which in my case won't be very difficult. The saints in this passage remembered their suffering and their martyrdom, and so it's certainly reasonable to assume that they will remember other things on earth as well. In heaven, do we see what is happening on the earth? Yes, at least some of it. The martyrs in this passage know that God has not yet brought judgment on their persecutors. In Revelation 19, we're told about the roar of the great multitude as specific events of the judgment take place on the earth. Just because we get to heaven doesn't mean that we're no longer participating with God in his redemptive purposes on the earth. In the transfiguration, when Moses and Elijah were talking with Jesus, they spoke with Jesus as if they knew what he was about to do. They seemed to be fully aware of the drama that they had stepped into and of what was currently happening on the earth. And when they returned to heaven, I'm sure they remembered what they discussed with Jesus. The great cloud of witnesses that Hebrews talks about refers to the saints as seeing, at least in part, the drama of God's work on the earth. Otherwise, they wouldn't be called witnesses. It's clear from the variety of passages that that are in the Scripture that angels know what's happening on the earth. And not only do they know They're very much involved with God in his plan and his work. And if the angels know, then why not the saints who are the very bride of Christ? Those in heaven are not unaware. They're not just passive bystanders. They are intensely interested, and they have great anticipation in the things that are happening on the earth. Well, do people pray in heaven for us on earth? The Bible says that Jesus in heaven intercedes for us, so why not the saints? In the same passage, we see their martyrs talking to God, which is what prayer is, conversation with God, and the martyrs are saying, when, O God, will there be justice on the earth? When, O God, will you act? And since they are allowed to see, wouldn't it seem strange if they weren't also allowed to pray? If they talk to God about his plans and purposes, doesn't it stand to reason that they would be able to pray for us as well? In fact, their prayers are probably more effectual because now they have heaven's perspective and they see at least in part God's will. Well, Joel, how can this be heaven if in heaven people are aware of bad things that are happening on the earth? Can there be sadness in heaven? Well, think about it. Angels are aware of evil on the earth, aren't they? It doesn't diminish their joy in heaven. Abraham and Lazarus saw the rich man's agonies in hell, but paradise didn't cease to be paradise. When Paul was persecuting the church, Jesus said, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Well, if Jesus, who is in heaven, feels sorrow then might not others feel grief as well? See, you have to remember what the Scripture says. 
when it says that there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, that's referring to the new heaven, which we will talk about shortly. Though the intermediate heaven is paradise and it's full of joy, there's nothing to indicate that there won't be sorrow there as well. As wonderful as this place is, the saints are still longing for God to see his redemptive purposes pass. They're still in the pain of waiting for their bodily resurrection, for the final judgment, and for the refashioning of the old earth. Happiness in heaven is not based on them not seeing what's going on in the earth. It's based on a greater understanding now of Christ's victory. We're not overwhelmed by the evil that exists because we now have God's perspective and we have rich fellowship with God and we live in a sinless environment. So, in the heaven that exists now, we have learned that it's not just a spiritual place but a physical place as well. Remember, the saints were given robes to wear. We don't exist just as spiritual beings, but we have some physical form, though not our fully resurrected bodies. We also have learned that we will remember our lives on earth. Although we might not see everything, we certainly have some understanding about the happenings of earth, and to some degree we're allowed to participate in God's redemptive purposes. Isn't this exciting stuff, you guys? And we're just getting started. Question number four. What will the permanent heaven look like? After God's redemptive purposes are filled, are fulfilled, I should say, what will our permanent home look like? This new heaven, our permanent home, will be the union of the intermediate heaven, which is the heaven that exists now, a renewed earth, which we're living on now, but will look quite different, and something called the New Jerusalem, which is the city of God. The current heaven will be relocated to the new earth. It will be the ultimate fulfillment of the Lord's prayer, which says, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So, what will the new earth look like? The Bible gives us lots of clues, but in keeping with God's redemptive plans, I want to read something from C.S. Lewis in, in The Last Battle, part of the Narnia series, that I think will be helpful. You remember Lucy and Peter, a couple of the characters of Narnia. Lucy and Peter and their friends are on the threshold of going to Aslan's country, which is symbolic of the new earth. As they look back on Narnia, which represents the old earth, they are filled with a profound sense of loss. As they get closer and closer to Aslan's country, they notice something totally unexpected. Even though this new country is stunningly beautiful and radically different, they notice many things that are very familiar, except that somehow they look even more real. Here is a quote that helps us to understand what they experienced. This is Lord Diggory speaking. He said, Listen, Peter, when Aslan said that you could never go back to Narnia, he meant the Narnia that you were thinking of. But that was not the real Narnia. That had a beginning and an end. It is only a shadow or a copy of the new Narnia. You need not mourn over Narnia, Lucy. 
All of the old Narnia that mattered, all of its dear creatures, have been drawn into the real Narnia through the door, spelled with a capital D. And of course it is different, as different as the real thing is from a shadow or waking life from a dream. This new world is the deeper country where every rock and flower and blade of grass looks as if it means more. It was the unicorn who summed up what everyone was feeling. He stamped his right forehoof on the ground and he neighed and then he cried, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it until now. The reason I like the old Narnia is because sometimes it looked like this. Even though much of the old earth will be destroyed, as the Bible says, there will be a striking continuity between the old and the new. Remember, when God created the earth, he declared it all good. The new earth will be new, but there will be many things that are good on the present earth that will be preserved and carried over to the new earth. Why? Because God is not starting over. Rather, he's redeeming, he's restoring, he's renewing the good that he created in the first place. The world as we live in now, the world that we live in now, even in its fallen state, is a foretaste or a glimpse of the next world. The best parts of this world are sneak previews of the new one. Someone said it's like licking the spoon of mama's beef stew an hour before supper. (laughs) I like that. The new earth will be like Eden, but only better. The new earth will have the things that Eden never had. All of the developments of culture and society and art and technology all the positive accomplishments of civilization that God gave us the creativity to develop in the first place will be a part of the new world. As Lucy and Peter noticed, there will be a familiar continuity between the old earth and the new earth. The earth-shaking fall of man divided history to be sure, but it never erased or ended history. In other words, we won't be starting over on an undeveloped Eden. Rather, it will, be, it will contain the cumulative benefits of the things that God has already gifted us to develop as a part of our original calling to be stewards of the earth. Everything that was touched by sin will be removed, but all that was holy and good will be retained. This is just my opinion, but I don't think that the beauty of the Grand Canyon or the Alps or the Amazon rainforest, or the Serengeti Plain are going to be lost. I don't think the music of Bach and Beethoven, the paintings of Rembrandt, the great literature down through the centuries, or the discoveries of science will be lost upon the new creation. It will be like Eden, but only better. It's hard to imagine, but even what is familiar to us now on this earth will feel more real and be more beautiful on the new earth. I like what C.S. Lewis said when he said this, We want something else which can hardly be described or put into words. We want to be united with the beauty that we see. We want to pass into it. We want to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become a part of it. And so we shall. 
We've never seen men and women as they were intended to be. We've never seen animals before the fall. We've never seen nature unchained and undiminished. We've only seen it cursed and decaying. If our hearts are moved to worship now by what we see, imagine what it will look like when the curse is removed and everything is restored as it was intended to be. Now, for those of you who don't like change, and I know there's some of you out there, or you feel like you're going to miss some things that you enjoy here on earth, don't worry at all. You won't miss the old earth because everything we love about the old earth will be ours on the new earth as well. I mentioned before that the new earth and the new heaven will also contain the new Jerusalem. What is the new Jerusalem? Well, it's a city. There is a huge city in heaven. In fact, the new Jerusalem is the center of heaven. In Hebrews, it says that Abraham was looking forward to a city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. That city is the new Jerusalem. The new Jerusalem will be a place of extravagant beauty and natural wonders. More wealth than has been accumulated in all of human history will be spread freely across this immense city. There are many, there probably will be many other cities in heaven, but there'll be none like this one because this will be the home of God himself. It is a city that is far bigger than any cities we have on this earth. In fact, the Bible gives us the exact dimensions. It says that the city of God, the new Jerusalem, is 1,400 miles long, 1,400 miles wide, and 1,400 miles high. It's like a cube, kind of symbolic of the Trinity. This city will be as big as, well, if you compared it, it would be like the border of Canada down to the border of Mexico. From the Appalachian Mountains all the way to the California coast, That's how big this city is. In fact, at ground level, it will have nearly 32 million square miles. The height of the city may suggest different levels of the city, which would even provide more space. The foundation of the city has 12 layers, each layer made of precious gems. On the foundation, it has this great big high wall made of pure jasper, which is 200 feet thick. This is the wall of the city. Now, it's a bit of a mystery to me why, it has, why the wall of the city is 200 feet thick because there aren't going to be any disasters or dangers. I just think it speaks of the strength and the permanence of God's city. The walls of the city will have 12 gates with an angel stationed at each gate, and each massive gate is made out of a single pearl. That's where we get the expression, the pearly gates from. It's not just the subject of jokes. It really is a pearly gate. Imagine people from every tribe, tongue, and nation going in and out of the city. There are three gates on each 1,400-mile stretch, and that makes 12 gates. Imagine all these people going in and out of the city. Some will be leaving the city and going on these distant missions trips to maybe other galaxies. Another gate might be for people who are going on a great adventure. 
Another gate might be coming, people coming into the city to visit with friends or have a great feast or a banquet. The gates of the city, the Bible says, will never be closed because it'll never be night. The fact that the gates are never closed reminds us of our eternal access to God. Any citizen of the new earth will be welcome to come to the capital city and even have access to the king's throne. The Bible says that this city shines with the glory of God. Its brilliance is like that of very precious jewels. The city does not need the light of the sun or the moon because the glory of God gives it light. Now, it doesn't mean that the sun and the moon and the stars won't cease, won't be there. I believe they'll be there, but they just won't be the primary source of light because the glory of God will be. And then, if this city is not spectacular enough, the Scripture says that the kings of all the earth will bring their best treasures into the city. Now, for those of you who don't like cities, some of you country folk, this city will have all the advantages and none of the disadvantages. Even though this city will still be a city, it won't be like any of the cities that we know. It won't be overcrowded. It won't have crime. It won't have pollution. There won't be sirens. There won't be traffic jams, praise God. There won't be accidents. There won't be garbage. There won't be homelessness. Rather, it will be a city filled with natural wonders. Magnificent architecture all over the city. Many residents, bustling activity, cultural events, and social gatherings involving music and art and education and entertainment and recreation. The Bible says that this city is made of pure gold. The streets of the city... The streets that we walk on are made of pure gold, like transparent glass. That means that the gold in the streets that you see is so pure, you can actually see through it. It's a metal, but you'll actually be able to see through it. One of the great natural wonders of the city in the center of Jerusalem will be the river of the water of life. Let's listen to this description from Revelations 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No doubt this river will have countless tributaries that will flow throughout the city, to the delight of the many people who live there. And imagine what the fruit from the tree of life would taste like. And there are 12 harvests a year. Adam and Eve were banned from the Garden of Eden and were prevented from eating from the tree of life in their fallen state. But on the new earth, access to the tree of life is forever restored to us. Are you guys breathing? <laughs> I mean, this is just a taste of what God has in store for us. Next week, I'm preaching again, and the subject is heaven again. It's part two. We're going to be talking about what our bodies will look like. We're going to be talking about what we will experience in heaven. We're going to be talking about what our relationships will look like and what jobs we'll have and a host of other things. So stay tuned. I don't know what this does for you guys, 
But I find this information incredibly encouraging and inspiring, and it makes me fall more deeply in love with God. I don't know about you guys, but for me, it takes me out of that thick fog that we were talking about before, and it helps me to see the shoreline of God's eternal purposes. It renews my hope, and it gives me much greater motivation for living. Even the bad things that I have to go through pale in comparison to what God has in store for us. I understand in a new way what Paul said and what he meant when he said this in Romans 8.18. He said, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. That makes more sense to me than ever now. In this same chapter, where the magnificent city of, Jer- of the New Jerusalem is described, it states that only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life will be able to experience this. When Jesus died on the cross, he made a way for every man, woman, and child who's ever lived on the face of this earth to experience this in heaven. The only thing that he asks from us in order for that to be a reality is he asks us to believe in him and to receive him as Lord and Savior. Would you all just close your eyes for a moment, please? I want you to be honest with yourself. If you are here today and you're not sure that you will go to heaven when you die, if you're not sure that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, but you'd like it to be, would you please Raise your hand right now because I want to pray for you. Okay, I'm looking all over the sanctuary and I see hands up. Thank you. You can put those hands down. I'd like to pray for you right now and I'd like you to just pray in your heart along with me as I pray out loud. Dear Jesus, thank you for loving me so much that you were willing to die for my sins. Lord, I believe in you, and I receive you now as my Savior and Lord. Thank you for forgiving me and making a way for me to live with you forever. Change me, Lord, and help me to live the rest of my life for you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer along with me, and you really meant it, your name has just been written in the book of life. Amen. It will change your life because now you will have the sure hope of living with God forever. I'd like to pray for the rest of you. Could we all stand together? Let's pray together. Lord, our hearts are thrilled with who you are and of what you have planned for us. Lord, thank you for the opportunity this morning to take a little peek at what's coming. Lord, with this awareness, I pray that you would give us all the courage and the grace to live this life well. Let the reality of heaven touch our lives so profoundly that we never find ourselves without hope or joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you.
I know that we could bring the worship team up here and we would have plenty to worship again about. But as Sarah mentioned at the beginning of the service, we are going to be getting ready for a funeral service here. So here's what we'd like you to do. I just want to remind you that the worship team is not going to be up here. There aren't going to be prayer teams up here. But if you would just kindly police the area where you are and pick up all your trash, because we're not going to have time to do that, transitioning to the funeral. And then if you would vacate the building as soon as you can, we would all appreciate it very much. Thanks again. God bless you and have a great day.